Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. During this time of transition from virtual to online and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. It is such a pleasure today to welcome Dr. Natalia Cherry to our podcast. Natalia is an ordained elder in the Susquehanna Conference of the United Methodist Church, where she pastored local churches from 2001 to 2013, and previously served on the ministry staffs of Bethesda UMC in Bethesda, Maryland, and Metropolitan Memorial UMC in Washington, D.C., After serving in these ministry capacities for over 14 years, Dr. Cherry returned to the academy in order to encourage and equip theology students with an awareness of God's grace so that they may hear and respond boldly to God's call to make a difference in this world with that same grace. Natalia's research interests include numerous themes in Christian systematic and constructive theologies, historical theology, and Wesleyan Methodist studies. She is particularly interested in detoxifying the church and academy in her writing, seeking to center marginalized voices, decenter whiteness, and advocate for fuller inclusion of and leadership by persons historically and presently excluded on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, immigration status, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, and or economic status. Natalia has been married since 2002 to Paul, a licensed professional counselor and licensed chemical dependency counselor, and they have a son, Gregory, who's in the 10th grade and is active in theater, music, and service. So Natalia, what I'm hearing is you are busy. (laughs) We are recording in the month of May, so I know that it is just beginning to ramp up, and you are joining us from your office at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. So before we really jump into the meat of our conversation, how are you? How is life going for you, and what brings you here today? You accurately stated busy, but I feel like who among us is not busy these days, right? (laughs) The world having opened back up and everyone wanting to catch up on lost time from the pandemic for just about everything. It's been an exciting time. Of course, as you pointed out, it is the merry month of May, which means our students have just completed classes and are studying for exams. So I am in the thick of grading and preparing for the end of semester excitement here, as well as doing similar activities for my own student at home. But also I am enjoying the privilege of preparing to teach this summer, both course for Bright Divinity School, that's a new course for me in Missions and Marginalization, the Theology of Reparation. And I have a similar plan to do so at Candler School of Theology. So I get to work with different populations of students over the next several months. And I'm really excited gearing up for that new adventure, all while continuing to love 
talking about this book and working ahead on the next book. So it's it's a little busy, but it's all with things I love to do. The, you know, the reason I'm here. So it's it's fulfilling, even if busy. That's wonderful. I mean, and as people have probably gathered, you bring such a unique complement of systematic theology and engagement, but also deep commitment to the Methodist and Wesleyan heritage, as well as your ordination as an elder in the United Methodist Church. So, you know, you for any of those who haven't just immediately gone to Google Dr. Natalia Cherry, she teaches Wesleyan Methodist studies at Bright and also teaches systematic theology. So she's deep in this all of the time. And I love that <laughs> so much for our audience. I'm so glad you're here to share One of the things we wanted to bring you on, the main thing for today, is you recently published a book with Baylor University Press entitled Believing into Christ, Relational Faith and Human Flourishing. We could just unpack that title um, (laughs) (laughs) for, for a good half hour. But at the core of this is a question of Latin grammar that has gotten lost in translation, both, I would say, figuratively and literally over the past 1,500 years, give or take. Give or take, yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I wondered if you could begin by briefly describing what's going on in this kind of grammar conundrum that started you on a journey to writing this project. Absolutely. And for your listeners who fell asleep the minute you said Latin grammar, I want to make sure I point out that all of this interest started in and was grounded in the local church and my Mm -hmm. ministry as a pastor. I discovered this weird turn of phrase and this distinct three different ways of thinking about the idea of believing in a footnote in a document from the World Council of Churches, so very ecumenical, (laughs) when I was a seminarian in systematic theology, and I thought, oh gosh, look at that. That that should have been translated believing into. That doesn't make any sense. They've paired a construction that's about movement with something that's about thinking, believing, Mm. you know, that feeling. That doesn't make any sense at all. And I made note of it in my paperwork for my professor, and then I moved on, or so I thought. And it kept coming back to me again and again as I would be in pastoral ministry. I could be doing a Bible study or just having a conversation with the the servers at a restaurant about some interaction they'd recently had with their born-again Christian relative that they could not believe called themselves a Christian but behaved anything like they understood the Bible said something about Jesus Christ being, even if they weren't churchgoers. And they would say, how is this possible? And I'd say, well... You know, there's a saint called Augustine, you might have heard it said Augustine, (laughs) and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, somewhere in his writings, he said that there's a difference between credere deum, which is believing that God exists, credere ei, or deo, which is believing God, believing what God says, believing that what God says (laughs) is true, seeing that it comes to pass, whatever. And credere in deum, which doesn't make any sense to us anymore in English and literally means believing into God. And so I think what Augustine was getting at is that that's more like putting all your eggs in God's basket. That's Mm -hmm. more like going in a God direction no matter what and being vulnerable to others and caring more about others. And I think that what Augustine was trying to say is that there's a big difference between what I call a bobble-headed nod of assent 
to the things about God that we say in creeds or that we say you have to believe in order to be a Christian and believing into God in such a way that you are willing to risk your embarrassment or reputation or or having your mind changed about something or otherwise caring so deeply for the other person that you aren't going to harm them. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know exactly where Augustine said it though, so I can't be 100% sure, but I would get to that point in the conversation. And every time, whoever I was talking to would say, why didn't anybody ever tell me that before? Mm -hmm. If it was somebody who was in the church, they'd say, why don't we learn that in Sunday school when we're little? And they would say, well, when we say the creeds, why don't we say believing into then? Maybe it would help us get that idea. Right. Uh, And if it was somebody who was not part of the church, I often got, well, if if when my grandma dragged me to church when I was little, they had said something like that, I would have stuck around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is what really kept coming back to me as a pastor. How can I help people understand that really the Christian faith is about much more than just an assent to propositions that we all say are true, that it is about a way of living and being that is much more vulnerable and risky and deeply caring for the other. And where the heck did Augustine say it anyway? Because for some reason, the WCC, the World Council of Churches, had gotten away with just saying, in the West, Augustine said, <laughs> which of course, as you and I who have been to seminary know, you can't get away with that kind of footnoting anymore. <laughs> but apparently, if you're the World Council of Churches, you could back in the 1980s when that document was put together. So I thought to myself at the time, one of these days, I'm going to figure out where this comes from and see if I've got the right idea. And if so, how I can make it useful to people like me mm-hmm. who are in the pulpit, in the classroom. And like the serving staff at the restaurant who are perplexed by what their so-called Christian relatives or friends are doing. So that's what set me on this quest. And that's the difference in this funky little grammatical twist. I love that. I also love that what I'm hearing is footnotes matter. (laughs) So read them. It's true. You never know what you're going to find. There's a treasure trove in those (laughs) footnotes that we ignore because we're just trying to get through our reading, right? (laughs) That's so true. So, and and to that end, if you do go pick up Dr. Cherry's book, read the footnotes. They're very informative. They're juicy footnotes. (laughs) That's right. So before we kind of turn to worship, although this is all connected to worship in really important ways. Yes. You make a statement, if you'll let me read you to yourself and to our listeners. You make a statement that we're not abandoning propositions Mm. here. By that, we mean we're not abandoning that we make true statements and we learn true statements about who God is. But rather you say that they cease to be treated as the constitutive element of Christianity and instead become a means to the end of the relational sense of belief that is constitutive. And I I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what you mean by a relational sense of belief, because I think that really kind of gets us into what it means to come together in corporate worship with this new sense of believing into. Absolutely. Oh, thank you for setting that up so perfectly. (laughs) Yes. In fact, imagine my delight when I finally did get called to doctoral work and could spend the time diving down the rabbit hole to find out the sources of this 
whole idea in Augustine to discover it was in worship. Mm-hmm. These were sermons. He was mm-hmm. using these concepts with everyday worshipers. And to see that what he was describing was a difference between these things we say about God being all that matters and instead them being a means to an end of knowing who God is and sort of falling in love with God in such a way that we go into Christ and are incorporated in his members. He actually mm-hmm. talks about the difference. He's, he's riffing on John six twenty nine in the, the place that's most commonly referred to, though we now have access to more sermons than we did for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. He's talking about how Jesus talks about doing the work of God being, believing into the one God has sent. And Augustine says, well, what is this believing into? It's not the same as just believing him. It is by believing to love him, by believing to cherish or esteem him highly, by believing to go into him and be incorporated in his members. And his language there and in other sermons, as well as in commentaries on the Psalms where he uses this language, all of which would have been designed to help the preachers under his care, the people Mm -hmm. hearing him preach, and so forth, all emphasize this idea of us going into Christ and Christ somehow coming into us. And that, therefore, all the things we say about Jesus, all of the things we say about the Trinity in the creeds, are about us knowing and loving are about the one into whom we place our trust. Sure, we have that language still. But I see as I look across the Augustinian corpus, as they talk about all of the (laughs) millions of words he wrote, a way that it comes together that elsewhere he talks about the Holy Spirit being applied like glue in our baptism to make us stick to Jesus, as it (laughs) were. And I point out that that makes us also stick together, whether we like it or not. Whether Mm -hmm. we say the same things about Jesus or not, whether the way we interpret the things that have been said about Jesus the same or prioritize the same ones or not, we are ultimately stuck together. And the relationship to Christ is so much the priority and at the same time is so inseparable because it doesn't depend on us. It's the Holy Spirit holding us there. Mm -hmm. That we no longer need to cling so tightly to the ways that we hold the things that we say are true. We no longer need to be threatened by the suggestion that somebody else's belief about Jesus threatens my belief about Jesus. Rather, we can agree to disagree because we know that Jesus and we are stuck together regardless of whether Mm -hmm. we've seen everything properly. Mm -hmm. So that relationship really is everything, first of all, with us and Jesus, but because it's so tight we can dare to risk the relationship with one another even, and perhaps especially when we don't think alike about the things we say about Jesus. Right. It's it's not unlike that idea that we are, the greatest commandment is to love God. And yet the second is to love neighbor because to love God flows into love of neighbor. Exactly. That's, that's what I hear. Yeah. yeah as you like a circulatory system I talk about once we're glued right. into the limbs of Christ incorporated in his members in that that sermon that I just quoted from Augustine is literally talking about limbs so that we, our hands and feet are glued to Christ's in such a way that the directions Christ's limbs have always gone, which is going to be to the most marginalized person, the most left out, the seemingly lost, that those, our limbs automatically go in that direction, sometimes seemingly in spite of us, 
sometimes <laughs> when we least expect or want it to be that way, but always with that love of Christ flowing through us in ways that often surprise us. And again, remind us of how tightly it glued we already are to Jesus. Right. So in that kind of context, one of the things that comes up for me as a worship person is worship is the place where we learn and we practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when, like I grew up learning how to play tennis for several years and, nice. you know, I, I enjoyed playing games, but I actually really enjoyed going to work with a coach and just repeating and repeating and repeating those volleys, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. seeing what happened every time and getting it to where it was natural enough that it was a response when I was out in the game, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Muscle memory. Like muscle memory. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I think of this relational sense, if this relational sense of belief is one in which we are tightly glued to Christ and then we are tightly glued to one another, that's a totally different muscle memory for us as Christians in the ways that we believe versus something that really lifts up propositional belief as the main kind of that, I believe, statements, I believe, Mm -hmm. content so worship is a place where we practice this, and that doesn't make practice less genuine. It's actually incredibly important oh, yeah. that we practice it so it, so that our worship flows out into the world. And one of the first things, you've already named it a couple of times that you talk about with that, is how it impacts our creeds. Mm-hmm. In so many spaces, on a weekly basis, you say the Apostles' Creed, you say the Nicene Creed. At, at a church that I attend, we have a statement of faith that mm-hmm. is not necessarily from, you know, one of the councils. Of, right. You right. know, it's not an ancient creed, and yet it is drawn from Scripture, and it absolutely kind of contains the content of our story as a Christian mm-hmm. community. And so I wonder if you could help us think through what difference believing into not just the words, but the relational sense of belief that it gives us, what difference does that make to the act of reciting the creeds together and how we understand the impact of the content of the creeds? Absolutely. I I think it's really important to understand when you said that about your creed that your church says not necessarily being one that was set up by the councils, Mm-hmm. of Nicaea and others. I mean, there's seven ecumenical councils through the first millennium of Christianity right. that were all about, we look back on them and they say, we say, oh, it's just fighting over propositions. You know, the things mm-hmm. that we're going to say about whether or not the spirit proceeds from the father or from the father and the son in, in classical Trinitarian language, those kinds of things that put most people to sleep. Yeah. But at their core, what those were about really had to do with relationship. It wasn't just arguing because we want to be the people who say the right thing. It was because these things that we say about who God is, what God has done, how we're called to respond, have meaning for our everyday life together, have the ability for us to use and abuse God as a a means of holding power over one another, those kinds of things. They were really relationship-focused to begin Mm -hmm. with also. And something I get into in the book is the fact that reception of the results of those kind of councils initially before there was professionalizing of clergy to the extent that became the custom, it was up to the lay people in the congregations. They would receive the official word, but then they would sing it. They would pray it. Mm -hmm. They would add their own insights to it. They could 
fly it back up the flagpole and that could, <laughs> you know, act back upon the powers that be and how it would be interpreted. And so what your congregation is doing there is really participating in what, from the earliest days of the church, was how the relationships and worship worked together to -hmm. determine how we even would describe God, how we would worship. And I think that's a vital part of this whole concept of believing into in action, Mm -hmm. because it means that if we are changing the way we say the creeds, we are also explaining that in the process. The worship leader can explain it. The Sunday school leader can explain it. We can talk about it back and forth. People can make the connection in their own lives and say, well, this makes me think about how I need to treat that prickly person at work a little differently, you know, whatever it may be, in ways that can continue to grow and shape that creedal expression Mm -hmm. in music as well as recitation and in action. In the Mm -hmm. book, I talk about what would it look like for us to incorporate this understanding of believing into this relational faith, which I definitely know is coming from my Arminian Wesleyan heritage (laughs) and focus on relationship, you know, the class meetings and the the societies that were the early Methodist movement all were about relationship and holding one another accountable in love for the treatment of each other in the name of Jesus in the Mm -hmm. world for our growth in relationship with God privately and personally as well, from which that treatment of others would flow. So Mm -hmm. with all of that together, I ask in the book, what would it look like then for our creeds to become the signs we hold up, maybe at a protest, you know, that Mm -hmm. call for just practices toward workers or migrants or whomever it may be that we recognize Jesus' limbs are moving in the direction of now. Also, it could be something as simple as that creed informs our ability to show up outside our church when there's a marathon being run past it, you know, and Mm -hmm. hold up signs of encouragement. It's big things and small things that we can be displaying our belief into in the world in a way that is showing not just, hey, we're glued to Jesus, don't you wish you were, na 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 na, Mm -hmm. but more of a because we are glued to Jesus, because we believe into Christ and don't just nod our heads at the appropriate times in a service that is set up to save our souls and give us the benefits of salvation at the end of life, but Mm -hmm. rather is transforming the way we act and live, you see this love active in our actions in the world, whether they're literally on a sign we're holding or they're in our actions and what we're choosing to do. And I mean, of course, social media, I don't go into that in the book, but social media affords everybody, regardless of our disability or any other aspects of our running a marathon, for example, Mm -hmm. to be able to be advocates, to be displaying, pointing to the one we love, the one into whom we believe as one who is for the person seeing this witness that we bear on our timeline or whatever it may be, depending on the app. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm just so struck by the movement there, I mean, that's something you'd actually talk about in the book, that, that yes. suddenly faith takes on movement. There's actual yes. action and movement in all parts, not just a, I believe and therefore I do, right. but the believing and the doing are united to one another. Absolutely. They are one. And so when we think about what that means for how we plan and craft worship, I am so struck that that is... That means that worship is this 
that like when we gather, it's an opportunity for us to tell the story with one another, to live the story with one another, to recognize that when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that is not God over there, the creator, that is God right, right here, creator. That yes. is we believe into. I mean, I, I actually wonder if there's even a, a shift that believing into makes to recognizing the creeds as simultaneously I and we statements. Mm, yes, I love that. Yes. So yeah, there's just so much richness there. And one of the things that comes to mind for me in the sacrament of baptism, I, I happen mm-hmm. to be in a community that has recently done a lot of baptizing. Wonderful. And so every time, you know, so many children, it's amazing. And I know not everybody has that experience right now, but we have various times of year where we're invited even to remember our baptism. So if you haven't had a baptism happening in your community, I think specifically of uh, baptism of the Lord Sunday that comes around mm-hmm. every January is this opportunity to read the story of Jesus's baptism and then to remember our own baptism, right? Yes. And believing into connected to the creeds is so connected to our ancient practice of baptism as you talk about, because there was a time hundreds of years ago when the process of being baptized took three years. Right. And there was on, there was a point in those three years where you finally were like entrusted with the creeds. Up right until that point, yes. you never heard it. Like you were learning mm-hmm. all of the things, but you weren't you weren't given the story. Right. They had to know that you were prepared to be a holder and participant in that story with Christ and with the whole body, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we can't actually separate creeds from baptism, and creeds yeah. are actually part of many of our baptismal liturgies that you'll find in the Book of Worship and the hymnal mm-hmm. in the United Methodist Church. So I wonder, I mean, this is a very wide-ranging thing, but I wonder, you imagine as a pastor, you are you are presented with a candidate for baptism, or you're presented with an opportunity to remember baptism with the whole congregation. What does that practice look like for you from a believing into perspective? It's such an interesting thing because as you point out, you know, up to three years of catechism before being given the creed, usually during Lent, right? Weeks (laughs) before the actual baptism itself. And then the expectation that folks would be stripped naked to go into the baptismal mm-hmm. pool so that they could be clothed with a new white robe on the other side and go join the worshiping body, right? And have Eucharist, have Holy Communion afterward. We're nowhere near that in most United Methodist churches. <laughs> right, these days, right. I, I have yet to serve or worship in one that expected people to strip naked for baptism. But, but we can absolutely make a point of preparing people, even if it's only for an hour, let alone six mm-hmm. weeks beforehand, right? Uh-huh. in conversation, in small group, to understand that sort of stripping away of all of the inhibitions that keep us from what I call in the book, bold surrender to who God is and to God's loving care for us, and therefore to the other, whomever the other is in our uh-huh. midst, whoever is being othered by any aspect of society or religion or, you know, any other culture, cultural peace. And in doing so to instead sort of immerse ourselves in who God is, who 
God calls us to be and, most of all, where God is going and mm-hmm. that we are now on the move with God. And we might think, oh, but for children, does that really apply, especially babies? I think you got at something that I rarely see maximized mm-hmm. in our congregations, which is the body of believers and the way in which baptism is to be an initiation into that whole life together. Mm-hmm. We have so hyper-individualized often baptism as one's profession of faith, which we mean assent to a list of tenets, right. instead of this movement into this body who is on the move together. And yeah. fortunately, in the United Methodist Church, we have absolutely gorgeous baptismal liturgy already for us, whether we are still using the hymnal books in the pews or projecting on screens or however that may be. We have a very vibrant liturgy that invites everyone in the space at the time of baptism to recall the whole salvation history, mm-hmm. to know who God is and be reminded of how much movement into and through water was involved in that, and then to reaffirm all those who are already baptized what it is to take the vows. And of course, that that really special and unique resisting evil and injustice yeah. and oppression and all the forms in which they present themselves, that's a pushing back that requires movement. And so to, to reiterate that, so often we're squeezing baptism into an already crowded hour of worship in many mm-hmm. of our congregations that we don't necessarily take every piece of that liturgy and really dwell in it. Right. I used to call this as a pastor, let's splash around in the baptismal waters together mm-hmm. and get wet, as it were, not literally necessarily, but, right, uh, right. but have that reminder of the movement mm-hmm. and the refreshing that that action with water implies so that we are then moving out of this space together, committed to continuing to help, especially that young person in the case of infant or child baptism, to know as they grow that we are a people on the move. We are an enfleshed, believing into means something with our bodies, not just with our hearts or minds. Right. And and I think that we can do that with the tools we already have, Mm -hmm. in addition to whatever acting and reacting back upon them in the early church way we might bring to the table. I'm not saying we're tied to those words, but we at least have a robust set of liturgy already available to us. Right. That if we dare to make use of all of it, we can do this movement. We can do more than go through the motions and actually move in a believing into direction that grows us in holiness of heart and life, to use John Wesley's mm-hmm. language, mm-hmm. and in relationship with God, with one another, and therefore with the world. Right. I love that. Uh, you know, for for listeners who are thinking, oh, I've got to return to my book of worship or my hymnal and take a look at some things, I would just kind of raise up this question that we ask, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in His grace, and promise to serve Him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races? Like, that is... And when you start thinking in a believing into that mm-hmm. we are entering a sacrament that, as you as you put it in your book, this is the application of the Holy Spirit glue. Like this is this is that moment 
that this is yes. this is such an active thing that we are partaking in. And and questions like this are a reminder, not just that this is what's happening for this person, but that we've all done this. Yes. Like the, the body of believers has been glued to Christ and 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 it is a it is efficacious from like it is effective yes. from that moment. And we are on that journey together. And every time we baptize, we're not just affirming this person's commitment to mm-hmm. confess Jesus Christ. We're remembering and affirming our own commitment. Oh, I love the way you said remembering. Yeah. Because if we think of member, again, as a word for limbs, it's like we are getting, we're stretching our arms and legs again, and mm-hmm. remembering. We are once again moving our arms and legs in the Jesus word directions, you know, Mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. directions Jesus has always gone together. That's lovely. Yeah. So before we close out, I really just cannot close out this conversation without talking a little bit about Holy Communion. Yes, please. We could have actually talked about this the entire time. Of course. um, Because it's, (laughs) it's just so rich and beautiful. But one of the things that I love is we've talked kind of this, in most of what we've talked about so far, kind of this, we go into, like Mm -hmm. we are glued to, we believe into Christ. What impact does that have on our recitation of the creeds and baptism where we are glued to? But you have this beautiful way of talking about Eucharist Mm -hmm. or Holy Communion as the reciprocal Christ going into us. Yes. That this is not just one-way motion. Like, I, I I read this the first time I was like, God's invested. <laughs> like, yes. Yes. when we believe in two, <laughs> yes. God comes into us through Christ. And that the, the repetition of Holy Communion is this constant kind of practice of, of taking in Christ. So I, I wondered if you could kind of just talk with us a little bit about that and talk to us about even what does that mean for what it means for a presider to be up and presiding at the table and welcoming people to the table? What does it mean for what the words that we say and the way we remember the story of Christ and of God's work in the world within the sacrament of Holy Communion? And you want me to sum all that up in just a few minutes, huh? No, Absolutely, just <laughs> please. No, that's great. It really is an expression of my Wesleyan heritage. And I'm especially Mm -hmm. mindful of this, having just concluded a whole semester of history and doctrine of the United Methodist Church with Mm -hmm. my students, of course. But it's not just Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. John Wesley preached frequently on the, in one sermon titles parlance, the duty of constant communion. Mm -hmm. You know, for them, it wasn't just, we should have it every Sunday. We should have it every opportunity possible, multiple times a week that we should be celebrating Holy Communion together. And I say celebrating on purpose. Uh However, even Augustine, in the sermon in which he's talking about Christ coming into you, he specifically says, somehow or other, Christ comes into you. Mm -hmm. He doesn't necessarily say it's in Holy Communion, which must be celebrated in this way with this kind of bread, this kind of wine, you know, and it's absolutely transubstantiated into, you know, there's no chemistry involved here, regardless of how our Christian traditions, and there are many of them, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of how they view the elements involved 
the specific words necessary to the institution over the elements or the invocation of the Holy Spirit, or even who can handle those elements at the table, whether it must be an ordained person or can be a lay person or so on and so forth. None of those details detract from the vitality of this gift to us, right? Good gift, Mm -hmm. Eucharist, being this symbolic movement of God in our direction, even as we are believing into Christ. Mm -hmm. And the creeds in many traditions are as linked to a constant celebration of Eucharist as they are to baptism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's helpful as well. But really what it means for me, again, we have marvelous liturgies available to us in the United (laughs) Methodist Church. See the Discipleship Ministries website. (laughs) But we also have so many ways to say thank you, the great Thanksgivings. Mm -hmm. We have so many ways for the person at the table to be given opportunity to really be celebrated. I think back to my own experience with the late, great Lawrence Hull Stuckey, a.k.a. Larry, Mm -hmm. at Wesley Theological Seminary in the last century, (laughs) (laughs) giving us opportunity as students to practice. It was a literal practicum, just to Mm -hmm. show up in the space and do the things. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was one of my pan-Methodist siblings an AME brother, Don Marbury, who, as I got done going through the motions (laughs) of the liturgy for the Eucharist, he said, now that's what it means to celebrate Holy Communion. And he wasn't just flattering or complimenting me. I think what he saw, as we talked about it afterwards, was the joy, the life that it brought to me to be here hands-on with bread with juice, and to carry words with these elements that point to the ways in which we move in Jesus' direction by showing up here, but Jesus already has prepared the table and is already coming to us. And I didn't yet have all of that Augustine stuff, but I had discovered the footnote at that point. (laughs) And I do think that part of that was the difference that this movement-focused believing makes, that we can see this not simply as a sad memorial of our redemption and we are supposed to feel bad for all that Jesus did for us, but on the contrary, to see that suffering with us is part of God's love for us. Mm -hmm. Not just suffering for us, suffering with us, going through a life where Jesus is misunderstood where Jesus' own friends don't often get it, (laughs) or family for that matter, in addition to all of the miracles that are done and the promise that we can do more and greater than that, right? Mm -hmm. Not because we're so cool, but because of this relationship that continues even beyond death, resurrection, and ascension. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, this is why I write about our limbs moving in the directions Jesus always have, this taking into us, not necessarily the chemical flesh and blood, but this this figural bodily act, this Jesus coming into us is what then motivates us out the door in ways that we see the suffering and we don't shy away. We feel the strength coming not from our own doing, but are Mm -hmm. glued to Jesusness. Mm -hmm to join alongside of those who are suffering, to 
call for help to, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, help people along the way to a place where they can be cared for. But that suffering with the suffering as itself an act of what I've called in the past an element of active resistance connects with that baptismal vow and is equipped and empowered by our constantly being reminded of Jesus coming into us so that we can go forth and dare to suffer with the suffering or share our own sufferings with each other mm-hmm. in ways that transform suffering and keep it from being something that keeps us apart, right. but rather grows us in relationship with one another and with the God who suffers with us. That is I don't even know how to like wrap it up from there. So we're going <laughs> to, I feel like this is, this is a comma, not a period in the sense yes. that there's so much richness here that I hope in some ways for you, our listeners, this is a comma in the sense of you take this conversation and you, it keeps on doing things for you. And it engenders more conversation and exploration for you about believing into. I also hope that it's a comma for us because I think there's so much more that we can talk with Dr. Cherry about in the future. And I, I think it, it could be a lot of fun. So for today, thank you for joining us. We hope that this has been a helpful conversation for you, our listeners, and we're so thankful for Dr. Cherry's presence with us today. Remember that you can find more information at our website at umcdiscipleship.org. We want you to tell us what you think, so send us an email. And until next time, we will be praying for you and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.